Hello everyone, Jeremy here. We at Beyond the Mask want to wish the nation's 54,000 CRNAs and SRNAs a happy CRNA week. We know that you do an amazing job delivering more than 49 million cost-effective anesthetics each year to keep your patients safe and comfortable. And we just want to say thank you for being there every breath, every beat, and every second. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And All right, Sharon, good morning. Good morning, yeah. Jeremy. Well, we are back together again. It's uh, fun to be back together again. Well... I have to take while. a water hose to us to get us apart <laughs> now, doing all of this today. Yeah, it's been a little while, though. It's, Nine uh, sessions today. It's good to be back in today. the studio. Yeah. So, Nine yeah. sessions today. You'll be sick of me by the end of the day. <laughs> I'll be ready to be home. I? <laughs> <laughs> well, what time is it? It is time to wake up, Jeremy. That's right. It is time to wake up. And we have a very special guest, and I know he's very special oh. to you. Mr. Jerry Hogan, who was in your class, yes, right? the brother I never had. Yeah, so you know Jerry was a, a '92 grad from North Carolina Baptist, where you went to school as well. Mm-hmm. Completed his uh, Doctor of Nursing and Science degree at the University of Tennessee in 2004, and has been a CRNA educator since 2001, and served mm-hmm. as program director of Florida International University, and is currently up in the Windy City at Rush University. Um, how's the weather up there, Jerry? Well, it's like 58 and drizzle right now, so mm. great. Okay. <laughs> great podcasting <laughs> weather. Great for Chicago. <laughs> hey, fall it's supposed just... to be 85 on Monday, though, so that's kind of Okay. Weird. Yeah, fall just started here, and it's going to be 92 today. So. <laughs> yeah. So. And you, you also completed your post-master certificate in advanced psychiatric advanced practice and certified by the American Nurses Credentialing Center as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. Correct. Wow. Wow. Well, Jerry, we want to thank you for being here today. And your topic we're going to be talking about today is PTSD, second victim syndrome, wellness, and stress. And, you know, I think with that, I'll let you kind of jump in here and and maybe get your key points across, and we'll go from there. Sure. Well, I spend a lot of time talking about this wellness and personal 
self-like mindfulness among CRNAs and student nurse anesthetists, because I really do think that it's an issue in our society. I think that, especially among our profession, that we have a lot of people who who lack serious resilience. And so they start to develop some symptoms and some of the uh, characteristics of PTSD. You know, and I think that a lot of it is things that we, if we worked with them and that we really focused more on wellness and we really did some cognitive behavioral like reframing and getting them to think about things from a different perspective, that we could stave off a lot of the issues that seem to be popping up with people. And I'm not really sure exactly what is so different. I think it's just that we're much more willing to talk about it nowadays than they mm. were back in the old days. Because mm. I always think about the, you know, the World War II vets who never wanted to talk about what happened. And they were just told to just move on with your life and do your thing and did well. But now it seems that we just, um, people seem to just be more I don't know, symptomatic. I don't know what else to yeah. say. And and so I deal with a lot of issues with students and with some CRNAs who end up having uh, some post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms secondary to their career as, as a CRNA or a, even during their time as a student. PTSD in and of itself is an anxiety disorder. You know, anxiety uh, was always defined when I was in school for psych mental health as an intolerance of uncertainty. And so the inability to tolerate uncertainty for people sometimes is very anxiety creating in, you know, they, and they uh, have really difficult time dealing with it. And we all know that when you're in anesthesia school, there's a lot of uncertainty. Just a little you know, bit. That goes right? on. Yeah. <laughs> and so as the anxiety begins to, to build and some of those other issues begin to build with them, they start showing symptoms of some PTSD. PTSD in and of itself is, uh, it's usually by DSM-5 is, is divided into three clusters. One is re-experiencing, one is avoiding and uh, emotion, avoidance, I'm sorry, and emotional numbing, and the other is persistent arousal. And so what I find a lot of times is sometimes the intrusive recollection issue with some students and recurring distressing dreams in, are some of the things that they report. They also talk about some avoidance of people, places, activities that are reminders, you know, of some of their traumatic experiences. And sometimes they'll even feel some emotional detachment and estrangement from others and from people that they uh, had been close to in the past. They report difficulty sleeping, sometimes difficulty concentrating some hypervigilance. So again, all these things are all symptoms of PTSD. And so I think a lot of times that with a lot of people, if you can kind of reframe the way they think and the way they look at things, then it gives them that opportunity to be mindful and to look at it from a perspective of one, like what I talk to them about all the time, at least my students is that, you know, every day is a victory. Every day is one step closer to the goal. Mm, and, um, I like that. you know, and, and you have to think of it from that perspective, or you're just going to make yourself, you know, tired. Insane. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hey, hey Jerry, you know? is this, is this more of a, I mean, I'm listening to you talk here and I'm just thinking in my head, this seems more of a societal issue. And maybe, you know, as you're talking to your students who are probably majority millennials, you know, we hear all kinds yes. of, of speak out there about millennials and how they've, they've had everything given to them. And, you know, it's our fault as parents of millennials for doing that, but they've never really had to 
deal with any kind of setbacks or any kind of adversity in their life. And, and when they do get setbacks and adversity, they just really don't know how to deal with it. And you mentioned, you know, World War II veterans and so forth. But back in those days, people dealt with those types of issues on a daily basis. Has that got a lot to do with this, you think? I, I think there's something to be said about the way people are raised. You know, a lot of the theory behind all mental illness is that there is both a genetic component and then like a um, component that has to do with um, how you were raised and how you were brought up and your basically your experiences, life experiences, mm-hmm. um, especially in childhood. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, nature exactly. versus nurture kind of thing. You know, so it's hard to say. I don't think anybody says that it's all one or all the other, but there's kind of this weird combination of your genetic predisposition and then the triggers that and the, the things that happen during your life to aggravate basically that situation. I find that a lot of people just don't handle stress particularly well. And I don't know, it's because I think a lot of it in all honesty is because I know I'm guilty of it with my own children that, you know, there was a time if I had an issue at school or if the teacher, you know, sent home a note that said that I was behaving badly, you can guarantee that it didn't end there. Now a teacher sends a note, a note home. And what's the first thing that the parent does is they fire off an email the to the teacher saying, how dare you, you know? Yeah. So I'm not sure how that all it's, it's shielding. We do a lot of shielding as parents. We did. We valued our children significantly more than the generation before us did. <laughs> <laughs> so are you saying our parents didn't value us, well, Jerry? Just, just figured that they could have more. Um, but no, but I think that our willingness to step up and do the work for them as far as dealing with issues and problems, I, I don't really think we're helping mm. at all. That well, so, I think that discussion that has been had around the me. table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we talked about anesthesia school just a little bit, and you know it it is very trying. You are the best nurse on the unit. Now all of a sudden you are you go to anesthesia school and you're low man on the totem pole. So wellness will start at anesthesia school. Why don't you share a little bit about that with us? So. When I was in Florida, one of the things that we did, and Ryan Shores, who is one of the CRNAs, he's the assistant program director at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, their CRNA program, was always very, very focused on wellness and would have wellness chairs in each of the the class and would plan wellness activities, whether it be bowling or kickball or something like one class versus another. And it was really obvious to me once we started doing that and really started getting together as, um, as a group outside of anesthesia, that it just seemed that people, you know, just dealt with things better, were happier and and could see each other and could see the faculty as other than just being, you know, their tormentors out there having fun. And so I brought some of that with me to Rush. But what I found when I came up here was that there was um, a fair amount of resistance, a very different mindset where the students didn't necessarily all get along well with the other classes on either side of them. And so it's, it's been a little bit of a challenge, but I think that we've developed some social activities up here to help them to step away from their role as a student nurse anesthetist and into more of a social role. And I think that helps a lot too. I think that having some healthy distraction 
away from school is a good thing. And I tell students about all, all the time, I said, do you, do you have a hobby? Is there something that you like to do? Now, it doesn't have to be something that's really time consuming, you know, but maybe it's something that you can spend an hour a day doing that takes your mind completely away from. Like, another thing I suggest to them all the time is, have you thought about going to the movies? Because that's probably two hours where you're going to not think of anything except what's going on on the screen. Mm, good point. You know? And it takes your, your brain out of the, the picture for a little while and all that the hamster and the wheel thing going on, you know. Well, I think having your classmates to rely on. We went to school together and we had an amazing class. And we did, we did so much stuff together outside of the anesthesia realm. And all of us have pretty much stuck together. We're coming up on, gosh, what? close to 30 uh, long, years long time, long time. and we are all still really good friends and still we get are. together and and the the thing about it that always cements that with me is the fact that i may or may not talk to like me. Sharon, for example for <laughs> uh, uh you know for six eight months or a year and then we're back together at a meeting and it was like we talked yesterday yeah it was like there's no awkwardness at all that's there's great. zero awkward anything with it and so i think that's those kind of friendships and connections you know we're psychosocial beings we need to have connections and you know and that's an important thing too because you know for me i I firmly believe that healthy people are people who can control their thoughts and their feelings and their behaviors it doesn't mean you have to be happy all the time but it means that you're just emotionally aware and mindful of of your thoughts you know and that you deal with emotions as they happen that you can you know emotional health to me is something that's intentional it's a skill that you can develop you can improve the way you think about things if you let yourself view the world from a pause a more positive perspective you know and that's what i run into i run into some victimization issues sometimes with students and all i hear them say well you know i have no control over my life and i just do what i'm told and you know and i and and that's like you know everybody has control sandy's line wasn't sandy's line there are no victims here only volunteers right yeah <laughs> you, know? you can control that right <laughs> i remember I, I remember one day she said no court in the land ever sentenced anyone to anesthesia school <laughs> you're, you're free to go that's another sandyism that's uh, what we no. call them sandyism oh yeah there was a lot of them yeah. <laughs> victims are people who have no control over their circumstances you are free to go oh, yeah. um and i don't do that I'm, i mean obviously i wouldn't I, I don't think i think maybe if you pushed me hard enough i might say it but probably i'd think it before i'd say it but but I just think that we are the ones who are responsible for our own emotional well-being yeah. and our own mental health. And so for me, a lot of times, I just have to remind them of the fact that, you know, it's kind of like when I work with them in the operating room, one of the Hoganisms that they always joke about is <laughs> I always tell students all the time, the only person in this room who cares about your happiness is you. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. So if you've got a lead off, you know, you're because we monitor everything in five leads here, you know, at the place I work and one of your leads is off. Nobody in that room cares Mm -hmm. except you. You're the only one. So you're the one who has to make the decision. You're the one who has to speak up. You're the one who says, hey, I got to stick my hand under the drape. Hey, I got to whatever, you know, or somebody's leaning or, you know, if if the surgeon's leaning on your blood pressure cuff, you know, you're you're the only and, and you're not getting any blood pressure reading. The only person who cares about that is you. And so I tell them all the time, and, and I say the same thing to a certain extent with life in general, is you're the one who control, you're, you're the one who's in control and can, can drive that happiness bus. Yeah. You just have to be the one to, you know, you got to get behind the wheel and you got to just do it and not allow yourself to sink into this victimization role that just is kind of like this bottomless pit, you know, kind of sucks you, you in just and get into, yeah. but 
Jerry, what are some resources that are available to CRNAs with? Oh, the AANA has so many resources available. They have done so much with wellness, and there's an entire page about wellness in the uh, on the website, AANA website. They cover everything from peer assistance to treatment recommendations to they have resources out there. They've got a million different things that talk about all the different um if I could get my computer to work, that would help. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but anyway, there's so many resources out there about wellness that I think they've really done an amazing job because they really do recognize that our profession is very stressful. Yeah. You know, just and, a and, little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit. You know, the old, there's an old joke, uh, an old definition joke of anesthesia as hours of boredom interspersed by moments of sheer terror. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly but, what it is. <laughs> Hi everyone, this is Jeremy. You've heard the promos about Our Hearts, Your Hands, founded by Sharon's good friend, Jackie Rolls. It is a charitable organization that supports global nurse anesthetists from low and middle income countries by providing educational scholarships and grant money for books and equipment. Sharon and I are committed to supporting this organization. They're currently seeking donations to send African nurse anesthetists to the first Pan-African Nurse Anesthetist Conference in Kenya, June 11th through the 13th. $1,000 will cover registration, travel, and food for one delegate. You can make a difference in the access to safe anesthesia care in Africa. Support your colleagues through your tax deduction donation. Any amount will be appreciated. See the link in our show notes to donate. So, Jerry, you talked about mindfulness. How do you yes. practice mindfulness? Mindfulness, to me, is the ability to put forth some thought into your reactions, mm. your gut reaction. When you gut react to something, rather than just allow whatever to fly out of your mouth, that you actually just kind of teach yourself and train yourself to take a step back and say, wow, that really triggered me. And why? Why did it trigger me? And why did I allow that to trigger me the way that it did? And what can I do to kind of deal with it, but yet deal with it from a perspective where it's kind of like the email thing. We've all written those emails that we've just Mm -hmm. and then not sent it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you've read you wrote it because you know why? Because it was cathartic. It felt good to let that that mm-hmm. out but then you said to yourself there's no way I'm ever going to send this. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you know? this is when and you're it, supposed to count to 10 yes. for the mindfulness <laughs> and I and, think I've never learned how to do that. And that's the thing too. Yeah. I mean, our parents, you know, I mean, they kind of got the basics of mindfulness because they would say things like that. They'd say, you know, think about your actions, think mm-hmm. about whatever, you know. Mine was always well if so and so jumped off the, you know, bridge or you're going to jump yeah. off the bridge too kind of stuff. Yeah. But um yeah, and I think that it's having that ability to kind of dissect your emotional reactions and say to yourself, why did I react the way that I did? Why did that trigger me the way that it did? You know, and to be able to do some reflection on your reactions. And over time, when you practice that, you find that your reactions change and, hmm. and the way you look at things change. And if you try to view things from the po- from a more positive perspective, like with students, one of the things I tell them all the time is that, you know, yes, you know, not every day is sunshine and rainbows, you know, 
there are bad days. I had a really bad day on Thursday, but mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't mean I'm not going to go back to work on Tuesday. You mm-hmm. know, uh, in the ORCs, I work on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the operating room. And um, I had a, a really trying day on Thursday, but you know what? I just dust myself off and put that one in the record books. Everything's a learning experience and move forward. Yeah. You know, I always joke and I always say that with students, I always say something positive, even if the day just didn't go well at all between with us both um you know i always try to find something positive to say before i start into anything negative you know like well you were here on time today and and that's really great you know (laughs) if that's the best thing that happened at least something positive happened you know but i try to stay on the positive side i'm not much of a berater i mean i think things have changed a lot since when we were in anesthesia school because i think we kind of got beat up a little bit you know i'm not i'm not much of a beater up or i'm more of a builder upper you know i try to use positive they they all seem to respond much better to positive sure. reinforcement well you know? Every, you know some people say we're babying our students though what would be your response to that jerry i just think that they learn and they react and they come from a much different place than we did and and you know i i sometimes they're a little more sensitive about things like one of the the issues I have is um, if I give somebody a bad clinical evaluation, it's going back to their class and saying I don't like them, mm. you know, and they're kind of mutually exclusive to me, you know, right. whether I like you or not doesn't really mean you, you know, if you had a bad day in the OR, it has nothing to do with whether or not I like you, what I put on the evaluation, it's what happened. Um, but yeah, I think that, I don't know, I don't think we're babying them so much. I think that if you have really realistic expectations of them and they know that you have those high expectations of them and that they know that they're going to sit in the office and talk to you if it doesn't happen. Like, like I'll, I'll have occasionally I'll get a evaluation from one of the clinical instructors that says that they were completely unprepared for their day. So, you know, old me from many years ago, or if they said, you know, if someone starts a conversation with, do you know what your student did? You know, that never goes well. And I would, you know, blast them years ago, years and years ago. I'd say, what the heck was going on? Why did you uh, mm. now? I just, now I, what I've learned to do over time is I just say, so this is what I heard. So I want to hear your side of the story. Mm. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. Am I babying them? I don't know. I, well, I, I don't, I don't think so. But, well, um, you know, my dad used to tell me all the time, there's three sides to every story. Your side, oh, yeah. his side, and the right side. <laughs> Absolutely. Because both of you are going to slant it your way. And Absolutely. Which is, That's which true. is exactly the truth. Hey, Jerry, something else you mentioned earlier, and I kind of want to go back to it, is is reframing. You know, I mean, I, I yes. took a little bit of psychology back in in the day, and, and Sharon says I probably should practice it more, even though I practice it every day in what I do. But With finances, absolutely. Well, it's behavioral finance and what we do, and, you know, obviously money is emotional to people, and, you know, we deal with that every day. But talk about cognitive reframing, and because I think that's something that a lot of people can use in stressful situations if they understand it. Sure. Well, um, reframing is part of a, um, a specific type of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. And what cognitive behavioral therapy does is it focuses more on like identifying, understanding, kind of changing thinking and behavior patterns. So you retrain yourself on how to react to things versus um you know the way that you had done it before that was ineffective or was basically could be anything from you know ineffective to detrimental to you know any number of things cognitive behavioral therapy usually it's a brief therapy it's usually a couple you know maybe 10 12 
sessions that you do with people, but you really kind of get them to hone in on how they react and how they process different types of emotions that they have, you know, whatever the emotion is. It's actually probably one of the more effective treatments for PTSD, you know, using some cognitive behavioral therapy to get people to reframe and to kind of try to make them react differently than than they had reacted in the past. You can do restructuring, which is, you know, if people have flashbacks, bad memories, that sort of stuff, you can maybe try to clarify the trauma or whatever the thing is that's causing them to have all the problems differently from the way that they maybe have a very, you know, a lot of times uh, you'll hear a story that just sounds really, really horrific and then talk to somebody else who was there and find out that it wasn't really as bad as it sounds. It's just that that person took it that way. And so sometimes it's, you know, you use cognitive behavioral therapy to get them to look at something from a, a realistic and more of an objective standpoint than an emotional standpoint. A different perception. And, and again, it's something you can practice. You know, yeah. mindfulness is um, that ability to analyze your reactions and to say, okay, I, this is how I my initial gut reaction was and this is how I reacted. And now, especially the one thing that I always say is, you know, I don't want to, I don't like to apologize. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't like to put myself in a situation that I feel like I have to apologize for later. My so. wife says the same <laughs> thing about me. <laughs> if she's listening, she would chime in really oh, hard. Oh right my goodness. So, <laughs> Jer- Jerry, tell us why you became a psychiatric nurse practitioner. To Hang on one second, Sharon, because I've got to just say this. Okay? Because Jerry was just talking about that. So so one of the things I do when right? when I get into a situation. Oh, I got to hear this. Is I practice box breathing. Do you know what box, box yeah, breathing? So, and, and I think that the Navy SEALs do it and so forth. But you basically breathe in a box. So you'll breathe in for eight to ten seconds. Okay. You hold it for eight to ten seconds. You let out for eight to ten seconds. And then you don't breathe for eight to ten seconds. And you just focus on that breath the whole time. So if I get stressed or I'm dealing with things, that's one of the ways that I do it. I just wondered what you do, Sharon, if you get, besides just spouting off, because I know you do that a lot, but um, <laughs> but is there any way that you deal with things like that? No. No. What about you, Jerry? Since Sharon's not going to add anything. I was to just going to ask Jerry for some therapy going forward, you know, because um, I get it for free. Sometimes I, um, a lot of, well, not, I would say that when, when the stress level gets, you know, pretty high, I find myself doing similar, like uh, some deep breathing techniques. I'll, I'll just close my door of my office and just sit there in the quiet for a few minutes and just close my eyes and try to, you know, process and and think to myself okay i'm missing something here what can i do why am i feeling this way kind of stuff you know why why am i reacting to this you know i've i've had a lot of trials and tribulations at you know in this job that um and any program director it's not just me it's um it's an interesting difficult job you know and you deal with personalities and another sandyism was that um 10 of your students are 90 percent of your problems that's true and so it's so easy to focus on that 10%. That's even then, if you're a, a, a president of the AANA oh, yeah, on a absolutely. board of directors. And, and it's funny how that 10% takes up your time. Are, it's almost like they're amplified. It's almost like they're the 90%. But really, in all honesty, if you look at things realistically, you know, you've got a 
bunch of students out there that are working hard, doing the right thing, great attitude, but they're just not drawing the attention, you know, your right. attention. And so, so for me, a lot of times it's thinking about the fact that, okay, this one's about to drive me nuts and, you know, um, want to throw them off the 10th floor of the building. But, um, you know, obviously I can't do that. Right. Cause nobody's well, to go anymore. back to, uh, <laughs> to now, I do think women and men process things just a little bit differently. Whereas you guys might breathe, you go into your office, I'll call my girlfriend or, yeah, see, I, I, you know, pop we, up in a bottle of wine. Yeah. You guys yeah. don't do that. Um, <laughs> no, no, and, no. and y'all don't talk it out. No, and that's no, exactly what women do. If I get upset about something, we'll just talk it out. You right. know, Kimberly and we I are, yeah, Kimberly and I yes. are going to yell together. And there was a, something recently that kind of aggravated me and I just talked to her. We, and finally I'm like, okay, I can't even stand myself. I'm going to go home right now. (laughs) But I think that's how women and men deal with that differently. Yeah, definitely. Hey Jerry, you know, I I know you've had kind of a varied career. Um, Tell us a little bit about, you know, what all you've done throughout your, uh, your adult life here. (laughs) <laughs> uh, hmm, how much time you got? Let's see. Um, <laughs> not it, not as off. many as you are years old. <laughs> no. um, let's see. I started off uh, as a music major in college, decided that that wasn't going to work out for me. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife of uh, just one. Well, 36, 36 years, years. Right? same yeah, as Yeah, because Sharon got married a week before I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, same, same year, you know, same month, just a week earlier. And uh, she was going to nursing school and, told me I should do that. And of course, my gut reaction to that was, are you nuts? I'm not doing that. And then I thought I got nothing else. So I might as well. So every semester was, um, well, if this doesn't work out, I can always just switch to business or something, you know, or <laughs> switch to something else, you know. Um, and I ended up graduating from nursing school. And then um, when I found out about CRNA gig, I, um, I was just sucked right into that. I was like, I'm going to do this come hell or high water. I don't care. And I, you know, got in at school at Baptist. And, uh, but, um, I figured I was going to either owe somebody a lot of time or a lot of money for anesthesia school. And I didn't have a lot of money, but I figured one thing I had was time. So I let the air force pay for it. And I owed 36 months of active duty for anesthesia school. And they ended up getting nine years of active duty and uh, 15 of the reserves. So I think they got their, you know, whatever I owed them. And part of that reserve time was uh, two tours in Afghanistan. I spent a total of a year of my life in Bagram at Bagram Air Base in Bagram, which is a, it's an old Soviet base in Afghanistan that was during the, that war that had happened. And we just kind of retooled it and used it and dealt with a lot of trauma, a lot of people coming in from all over Afghanistan. It was the hub for both the intra and inter theater movement of patients. So if somebody got hurt at one of the forward operating bases, they brought them to Bagram because that was the trauma center. And then from Bagram, we sent them to Germany for more definitive care. And, and so um, on a daily basis, I saw people young, young, 18, 19, 20 year old kids missing limbs and you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and I mean, that stuff wears you down after a while and kind of gets on your, in, in your head. And so the second time I was in Afghanistan, I was there in 2005, and then I was there, there again in 2010. And when I was there in 2010, the group that I was there with, there were 18 of us. Uh, there's about four or five of them now that are out on 100% disability for PTSD from the VA. And that was one of the reasons why I had my or my post-9-11 GI Bill money to spend. And I said, um, well, you know, I can't spend it on anybody else. Nobody else wants it. And I've got all this money from all these deployments. So I was deployed, deployed a 
six times after 9-11. I was gone one time. I was deployed for an entire year. And so all that those months add up and I got all this money that just sitting in an account for either use it or lose it. So I went back and did a postmaster certificate program in psychiatric mental health because I went to they made us go to mandatory counseling and I went to uh, counseling and, and I would come out of the counseling appointments more confused than anything else. And <laughs> I thought, you know, I could do better. I can do this better than they can. I, I just felt like, and, and I'm trying to figure out why is it that I was in the same place with those same people doing the same things, seeing the same exact thing day in and day out. And I'm okay. And they're on hundred percent PTSD disability from the VA. I, I got to understand this stuff better. I don't understand this. And so my goal was eventually to work with PTSD vets in the VA I haven't got there yet because um, there's unfortunately in psych mental health, there's just not the money like you get making, you can make as a CRNA, but you know, maybe sometime down the road, I might be more, you know, inclined towards working with a veteran population. And cause I always felt like I had something to offer that population because I was there too, you know, right. and, and I, I saw it too. And, and I saw the aftermath and I dealt with, Every night, you know, I worked nights because the majority of the flying happened at night because it was safer and bringing patients in at night. And I mean, I did nothing but offload and onload planes with people that were just, I mean, Mm. devastating injuries every day for like hours at a time every day, seeing trauma and, you know, dealing with trauma and sending people to Germany um, with the CCAT teams with the ventilator and, uh, you know, everything else being sedated and intubated and ventilated and, you know, and, and you think to yourself, wow, you know, you, you just, it gave wears on your mind to say, you know, why, well, what are we doing this for? Why is this happening? You know, kind of stuff. And so um, that was it pretty much. That was the reason why I did the psych mental health NP uh, route was uh, just to try to get a better understanding. I thought maybe if I knew more, I'd understand more and maybe I could process better some of these things that were bothering me that I had seen. You know, and it, it was a good, I think it was still a good idea. I think that going that route for me um, makes me better at being a program director. It makes me better at dealing with people because I, I think I'm a little more mindful of how people behave, of behavior. Yeah. So, so you relate to them yeah. better and are able to yeah. understand them a little bit better. Yeah. You know, I try not to analyze people, you know. That's, uh, oh, come on, Jerry. We know, we know right. you analyze them. Come on. Good luck with that. <laughs> All right. Well, well Jerry, um, anything else? This has been great that you, you kind of want to get across to the audience as we kind of conclude here? No, not really. The only, the only thing is, is that um, just practicing as much as you can to do some reflection on the way that you react to things, you'd be amazed. And it sounds kind of corny until you try it. But if you actually try to just take a step back and, you know, if you fly off the handle about something, take a minute to just step back and say, why did I react that way? And what was it that triggered me? And what could I do in the future to avoid that same reaction? And and that sort of stuff, you'd be amazed at how it really does change you, you know, and your behavior. It's amazing to me the difference if you, and and there are times when you actually just go off the handle because you're mad about something and you let all of that stuff that you've been trying to practice for so long go because it just kind of gets pushed into the back corner because you're so angry or whatever. And then you say to yourself, wow, you know, wish I, I wouldn't I, have done that. that <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah. And that's, that's pretty much it, you know? And I think that from that perspective too, as CRNAs, I think that if we, find the things in life that bring us 
pleasure that don't make us think about anesthesia. I think people have an unhealthy, uh, a lot of CRNAs have an unhealthy obsession with thinking about anesthesia 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I, I just don't find that healthy. I think that having hobbies and uh, social interactions and that sort of stuff makes all the difference in the world, Yeah, you know, to keep you grounded. Yeah. Well, Jerry, we want to thank you for being on today. This has been an interesting topic. I think uh, I could probably talk to you for hours mm-hmm. about this, but we might have to have a you know a bottle of alcohol to do it. So, uh, and thank you for your service, Jerry. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Well, Sharon, I appreciate I think, that. I think that's a wrap. We yes. want to uh, thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure and hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review, but only if it's positive. (laughs) Until next time. It's a wrap. Hi, everybody. This is Jeremy. Remember back in episode 45 when my co-hosts Sharon Pierce and Kimberly Gordon talked about the candidate school for nurses that they're piloting at Yale for May of 2020. The application process opened on January 1st. If you're a nurse or a nurse anesthetist and interested in running for elected office or even if you're interested in managing another nurse's campaign, you will not want to miss this opportunity. As the first candidate school for nurses in the country, you will want to be in the inaugural class. Just go to the Yale Nursing website and search Candidate School for Nurses and apply today. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry. Or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. 
Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny.